Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I have two other podcasts out there. From John to Justin, which releases every single Friday, and Pucks and Cups, which releases every single Tuesday. I do all these podcasts full-time, the writing, the research, everything. So every doll you give helps keep it all going, and I'll make sure I thank you on the air and throughout my social media. As well, if you want to email me, you can at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter, my handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram and TikTok at Bairdo37. As well, I release weekly YouTube videos about Canadian history. And you can find Canadian History X on YouTube by just going to youtube.com slash C slash Canadian History X. For thousands of years, the land that would one day be Oliver was occupied by the Silix people, who camped along the shores of lakes, rivers, and glacial benches. The rivers, creeks, and lakes were vital to their lives as they hunted, fished, and gathered food from the countryside that was teeming with natural resources for them. The Inca Meep indigenous also occupied the area, migrating and settling near Soyuz Lake, which means base of bottom. The Inca Meep people, now called the Soyuz Indian Band, would have a long history in the area after it was settled. The Inca Meep vineyards would be one of the first commercial vineyards in the area, And in 1915, a day school would be opened to provide education for indigenous children and keep them out of residential schools. This would lead to a growth in arts and culture in the area, with several famous indigenous artists coming from the school. Around 1811, the first Europeans began to arrive in the area. Looking for furs, they would establish Fort Okanagan, which is to the south of current Oliver in the United States. From there, they would explore the area and trade with the indigenous people. Things would move slowly for the area when it came to settlement, but by the 1880s, gold quartz was being found east of Oliver, and soon a busy gold mine had sprung up, bringing in miners and merchants from all over the continent. Then west of Oliver, in Fairview, miners found gold that fueled a boomtown that lasted for a few years, but that town is now long gone. That being said, you can still visit where Fairview once stood, and there's a heritage marker to show you the location of this once booming community that was one of the largest towns in British Columbia for a brief time. You can also see parts of Fairview and Oliver today through the Fairview Jail, which was moved to the Oliver Museum site. For the next several decades, there was little in the way of settlement for Oliver, but that would all change thanks to the First World War. After the war, there were a lot of unemployed veterans around Canada who had returned home from the front lines. Those veterans were looking for homesteads and places to work, and that would lead to the Soldier Settlement Act. It was through this that Oliver would begin as a settlement. The area around Oliver and a Soyuz is the Sonora Desert, and to bring in settlement there needed to be an irrigation canal. The canal was the dream of John Oliver, the Premier of British Columbia. Through his initiative, the South Okanagan Lands Project was created, which not only created jobs for veterans, but also opportunities for work as well. One settler who arrived during this time was Michael Keoghan. On March 15, 1876, he had received a crown grant for a small piece of land to the north of Oliver. An Irish-born American, Keoghan was the first white man to be granted crown land in the area. On that land, he would build a cabin where he would live for most of his life. And while the cabin is now since long gone, 
you can travel up Highway 97 and see the chimney which stands to this day. This stone and slate chimney sits on a grassy area along with a few scattered log remains of the original home. The chimney is one of the few structures in the area that date back over 125 years, having survived not only the gold rushes, but also the flooding of Shuttleworth Creek in 1936. On January 30, 1919, work began on the project, which involved building the intake dam at McIntyre Bluff. For the next eight years, 37 kilometers of concrete-lined main canal was dug southward to the boundary. The canal was 18.5 feet across at the top, 5 feet deep, and ran at 230 cubic feet per second. It would allow farmers to put a foot of water per month on every acre of bottom land. In order to get to the canal from the east end of the valley to the west benches, a wood siphon was constructed that ran for half a kilometer at 6.5 feet in diameter. It was replaced by a concrete siphon, and today that siphon runs directly under Oliver. In 1921, thanks to the Canal Project and the Soldier Settlement Act, Oliver was established as a community. A post office, board of trade, and general store were all established soon after the founding. Within one year, electrical power was provided to the community, and in 1923, the Kettle Valley Railway built a station to Oliver to transport the fruit of the area north of Penticton. This station was the first place many people saw Oliver when they arrived to begin a new life, and the train station would be a vital part of the community for the next five decades, until the last train came through in 1977. The station is not gone, though, and you can relive those years when it was a vital link for Oliver to the rest of the country by visiting the Oliver and District Museum. I will talk more about this museum later. During the 1920s and 1930s, Oliver would gain recognition for something quite unique in Canada. During those years, the town rose to fame thanks to growing cantaloupe, becoming the cantaloupe capital of Canada in the process. Producers around Oliver started growing cantaloupe thanks to the previously mentioned process of settling soldiers in the area on 22,000 acres of land purchased by the government and sold to veterans of the First World War. Many of those soldiers began fruit orchards, and by the 1920s, Oliver had a reputation due to its cantaloupes, which was one of the major crops in the area. Thanks to the hot climate of the area, Oliver became the only place in North America where cantaloupe was grown outside of California. In 1923, 25 carloads, weighing 12 tons each when full, were shipped out loaded with cantaloupe. In 1926, the Vancouver province reported on 30 carloads of cantaloupe being shipped out of Oliver. Three more cars had been shipped in 1925. By 1933, packing houses in Oliver had more cantaloupe than they could handle, which helped boost the community's economy during the toughest days of the Great Depression. The Vancouver province would write, quote, Whichever paper you pick up and read the market reports, you will find nothing but favorable comment on the excellence of the Oliver cantaloupe. End quote. Newspapers across Western Canada would report on the arrival of Oliver cantaloupe, which were available for purchase. One newspaper reported that Oliver cantaloupe were selling for $4.75 per crate for the small size or $6 per crate for the large size. This amounts to about $83 and $105 today. In 1936, the first cantaloupe festival was held in the community that featured a baseball tournament, carnival, and big dance. It was also the first cantaloupe festival ever held in British Columbia. In 1937, the cantaloupe queen was crowned in the community, with Irene Tomlin taking the title that year during the second cantaloupe festival. In March of 1935, an interesting news story began to appear, alleging that in Oliver, the dogs were free of fleas completely. The Vancouver province would write, quote, 
A healthy dog without its complement of fleas is an anomaly. He is like a farmer without a grievance or a politician without a speech. End quote. There were several theories as to why all of our dogs had no fleas, but one person stated it was likely because of the presence of a parasite that fed on fleas. Another theory was that the dry climate conditions killed the fleas within a few hours. The Vancouver province would write, quote, Should a few fleas be needed for experimental purposes, the dogs of Vancouver will gladly spare what they can for the benefit of their cousins of Oliver. End quote. Not only would the matter be written about in Ripley's Believe It or Not, but it would also be published in newspapers across Canada. The Windsor Star would write, quote, Local parasite experts have long sought an explanation for the complete absence of fleas among Oliver's canine population, but they have made little headway. End quote. The Saskatoon Star Phoenix would write, quote, In Oliver Valley, a smiling land of peaches, cherries, and apples, nature has given the dog a new deal and complete immunity from the flea. From the dignified beagle to the humblest species, all share alike the benight endowment. End quote. The story would fade from the newspapers after a while, but the mystery would remain long after. In 1990, Oliver decided to do something that would help put the community on the map, and it came down to creating the world's largest cherry pie. Weighing in at 37,713 pounds, the pie had a diameter of 20 feet and was large enough to feed 30,000 people. The pie also used 20,000 pounds of cherries, which was just part of the 30,000 pounds of pie filling. There was also 3,500 pounds of sugar and 16 pounds of salt. The idea for the gigantic pie came from Bob Ellis, a member of the Oliver Rotary Club, who saw it as a good fundraising idea for offering people pieces of the pie for a small cost. Ellis would say later that it tasted okay, adding, quote, The criteria that Guinness had is that it is edible, which means that as long as people don't get sick, it's okay, end quote. The record still stands to this day even though other communities have tried to break it to no success. While Oliver was once the cantaloupe capital of Canada, times change and Oliver is now known for something else. If you love wine, then Oliver is the place you need to be. Home to nearly half of the vines in British Columbia and 40 wineries, there is good reason that Oliver is called the wine capital of Canada. There are wineries for every taste which feature tours, tastings and much more. There is even a big festival that honours grapes. But I'll talk about that in a minute. The earliest vineyard planted in the area was by Joseph Renyi, a Hungarian immigrant who planted a five-acre vineyard that is still operating today as the Stonehouse Vineyard. You might think that the community just calls itself the wine capital of Canada, but that title is as official as can be possible in Canada. In 2002, Queen Elizabeth II was touring Canada as part of her Golden Jubilee, and she officially gave royal assent to the fact that Oliver is the wine capital of Canada. You can't get much more official than that. There is good reason for this. Oliver has 12 wineries, while the Niagara-on-the-Lake area only has 10. When the first annual Canadian Wine Awards came out, Oliver's wineries took 5 of the top 10 awards. Back in 1997, a new festival was held in Oliver, the Festival of the Grape. Featuring over 50 wineries, it featured wine tasting, but it is a family event with grape stomp competitions, live music, food trucks, vendor market, and a kid's zone. Over the years, the festival has grown in popularity with 4,500 people coming out each year to enjoy the festival. 
Welcome to Inca Meat Cellars in the beautiful Okanagan Valley in British Columbia. There are over 172 wineries in the Okanagan, making it one of the most desirable grape-growing regions in all of North America. Now, here in the valley, the harvest is almost complete, and they are about to celebrate with the tasting of the wine at the annual Festival of the Grape, which is exactly when I like to show up somewhere after the hard work and before the party. <laughs> Okay, we've just arrived at the Festival of the Grape. Honestly, I didn't know what to expect, but there's this huge lineup. We've got to the front because we got the special, the special tag. But look at this. This is the uh, hello there. Hi. Hi. Nice to see you. What's your name? Beverly. Beverly. Does everyone get one of these? They do, but you've got to come in with a wristband. I got one. Do some have more no. tickets than others? <laughs> not if they. Isn't it like a wedding? You... Who you know? <laughs> I'm the father of the groom. I need more. <laughs> Have you had any samples? I've had a few samples. Just a couple? Just a, just a few. Right. And uh, which ones are you enjoying? Uh, I don't remember. Right. Hi, Deborah. Hi, Rick. Alana. Alana. And Alana is double fisting today. For the husband. For my husband, I no, swear. There's no husband here. You just, you just got two glasses, She's and that's got okay. Two kids. She's allowed. That's right. <laughs> uh, we're open from 11.30 a.m. to 5 p.m. today. That's a beautiful thing. Yes, and it's a family-friendly event as well. It certainly is, and think of how many children will be conceived today. <laughs> oh, who do you think of your father? Just three, Dad. I swear. <laughs> We have 24 teams that are going to be competing this afternoon, crushing grapes with their bare feet. Now, is this really a thing? I guess it's not done anymore, but for a long time, it was traditionally people would stomp the grapes. It's done a little less than it used to be, but uh, but at the winery that I work at, we actually do occasionally stomp the grapes with our bare feet. Okay, okay, so it's, it's not just nostalgia, it's a thing. Feet are perfectly suited for this. They're firm enough to squash a grape, but okay. they're not hard enough that they crack a seed. As the grapes are crushed, the juice is going to be flowing out of this tube right here. This is a spigot. I, I think it's. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah sure. It's a and then someone. One person's going to be collecting it, tapping this to make sure that the juice flows out properly. This is a thing? That is a thing. Okay, we're minutes away from the big competition, and this is my team. Hello, what's your name? Linda Bolton. Linda! Killer Linda. And yourself? Tony Monday. What's our strategy? We're going to squish as many grapes as we can. Wicked! I love it. It's always polite to purel your toes if you're going to prepare food with your feet. In 1997, Ken and Sandra Oldfield, along with Paul Bouchard, 
realized that the Chamber of Commerce needed a fundraiser to build their capacity that would also enable wider attention to growing businesses in Oliver. Together, the three of them developed the idea of the Festival of the Grape, modeled after the Fest of Ale in Penticton, and through the Chamber, executed the event in 1997. The event continued to be run by the Chamber and grew steadily over the years, being transferred over to Oliver Tourism in 2016, and then the unfortunate break in the successful run came in 2020 when it was cancelled due to COVID-19 restrictions. If you'd like to learn more about Oliver, I encourage you to check out the Oliver and District Museum, which is housed in the old BC Provincial Building, which is housed in the old BC Provincial Police Building, which is a heritage building that was built in the 1920s. By visiting the museum, you can find artifacts from the history of Oliver, dating back to the very earliest years, from the fur trading, mining, ranching, and agriculture, to the culture of the community, and much more. You can also watch films, listen to radio broadcasts of local news, and much more. So go check it out. I hope you enjoyed that episode of my look at Oliver, British Columbia. If you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. And you can donate to the podcast by going to canadaehx.com and clicking donate. I'd also like to thank all of my wonderful patrons, and I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Vobs, Robert Page, Richard D., Colin Johnson, Katie Caldwell, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, an anonymous patron that I truly do appreciate, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.